This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, the show all about your legal rights and your questions about the law. Good morning. I'm Greg Mayer, filling in for your regular host, Liz Gill. And I'm joined, as always, by Professor Richard Gershon at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our special guest today is Honey Ursery, a former assistant district attorney and currently the Title IX coordinator at Ole Miss. This morning, we are going to talk about the law of sexual harassment and sexual assault. We're going to discuss different types of sexual harassment, how the law protects against discrimination based on sex and gender, and what to do if you're the victim of sexual harassment or sexual assault. If you have a question about these important topics, Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We'll be right back after the news. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. I'm Greg Mayer, filling in for your regular host, Liz Gill, and I'm Joined, as always, by Professor Richard Gershon at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our special guest today is Honey Ursery, a former assistant district attorney and currently the Title IX coordinator at Ole Miss. This morning, we are talking about the law of sexual harassment and the law of sexual assault. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question or comment, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Good morning, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Greg, and we're really excited about this program today. But before we get started, I wanted to make a quick announcement about an event that's taking place at the law school that I thought might be of interest to the listeners, and that is that Professor James Foreman, who is a professor at Yale Law School, will be on campus today uh, presenting uh, uh, information about his book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America, and food and refreshments will be served. It's, it's at the law school at 1245 today in our Weems Auditorium. He'll also be speaking tonight at the Overby Center. Um, his book was on the long list for the uh, 2017 National Book Award for Nonfiction. It should be a very interesting presentation. And uh, that's at 1245 today at the Weems Auditorium at, at Ole Miss uh, Law that's School. That's correct. It is open to the public. Uh, and Miss uh, Ursery, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me. And and today we're going to be talking about uh, two very related areas uh, of law, which is the law of sexual harassment and, and, and then the law of sexual assault. And we're going to spend the first half of the show talking about uh, uh, sexual harassment. But it might be a good uh, good place to start if you could tell us a little bit about your uh, background and what you do as the Title IX coordinator there at Ole Miss. Sure. Uh, I was a an assistant district attorney in the Third Circuit District for six years. I started in 2008 and I left there in 2014. While I was there, my focus was child sexual abuse cases, sexual assaults, and relationship violence cases. So it was a great way to segue into uh, Title IX at the University of Mississippi. I started there two years ago and currently I investigate cases of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and all Title IX violations for the university. And if you could, could you tell us just in general terms, what is sexual harassment? Well, there's, there are two types of sexual harassment. There's quid pro quo sexual harassment and hostile work environment. Quid pro quo would be unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, verbal or physical conduct uh, of a sexual nature that may be used as a basis for a decision affecting someone's employment. When you're talking about hostile work environment, that can be unwelcome sexual advances that are objectively offensive, pervasive, or severe, 
and they have the purpose or effect of interfering with a person's work environment. And uh, uh, so there's two types, of, uh, two types as you just described, quid pro quo and hostile work environment. And let's start with quid pro quo sexual harassment because that's a very specific form, and that can only be committed by uh, who at a workplace. Normally it's going to be someone in a position of authority, and that would be toward their subordinate. Uh, they would request a sexual favor for, say, a promotion or for maybe another favor, a day off work. Those are actually probably easier to identify than the hostile work environment because in hostile work environment investigations, I'm looking for sometimes a pattern of behavior. Um, quid pro quo uh, are pretty obvious from the request made by the person in the position of authority. This morning, we are talking with Honey Ursary at the University of Mississippi School of Law about the law of sexual harassment. If you have a question, give us a call at one eight seven seven. MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Am I saying your last name correctly? It's Ursary. You're doing great. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure. Um, where, if 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 you're an employee in the workplace, well, first, the sexual harassment uh, law does that apply to every workplace uh, in the country? Most employers. I, I, by federal law, Title VII says that you cannot discriminate on the basis of race, sexual orientation, gender, um, national origin, ethnicity, I think genetic uh, information. So Title VII is a federal mandate for employers that they cannot discriminate. So, yes, they should. Um, everyone uh, here at the University of Mississippi, obviously, we have Title VII intersecting with Title IX. So it's federal law. And what is Title IX? What does that govern? Uh, Title IX is for um, universities. Anyone who is receiving federal financial aid cannot discriminate on the basis of gender. And the University of Mississippi, that will also affect students. So for us, we have Title VII that is for our employment context, and then we have Title IX for our students. But because we are receiving that federal aid, Title IX will intersect with uh, Title VII, say, when you have a student employee, which we have at this university. And it, it, so, so you have Title VII. That applies to all employers by virtue of federal law. And Title IX applies to, to – is that just to educational institutions like Ole Miss? Title IX is. Title VII is not. Title VII is going to be anyone uh, who is, ha, is an employer. So when you ask if employers have, uh, have to have laws or uh, rules about discrimination that would fall under Title VII, universities just have that added protection of Title IX because we do have students. So, Ms. Ursary, if, if that would then mean that uh, if, say, a faculty member at the university offered a student uh, a higher grade, uh, for uh, a sexual favor, that would that would be sexual harassment as well, even though it's not in the employment context. Correct, and that would be a Title VII and a Title IX issue. And, and when we when we talk about sexual harassment, and, and I want to sort of get more specific into the details of where and, and what it is, can, is sexual harassment can that only occur if you're in the workplace, or, or, or is it broader than that? Well. For our purposes, for Title IX, it can, it's on and off campus. So it can be outside of the workplace. Social media is a really interesting thing. That can affect someone at the workplace. So I would say outside the workplace as well. Um, unwelcome sexual advances um, and things like um, sharing photographs of another person at, you know, at work, maybe the actual act didn't occur at work, but if their actions interfere with somebody's ability to do their job, that can create a hostile environment. And if, if, if maybe just generally, uh, if you're a student uh, at Ole Miss and you believe you're the victim of sexual harassment, whether uh, by a professor or uh, a, a, another student, well, can, can one student sexually harass another student uh, at a college campus? Absolutely. Um, we, we have in our policy here at the university, we have specific policy regarding sexual harassment from one student to another. So it's the same test. It's going to be a totality of the circumstances. We're going to look at patterns of behavior. 
one act can be enough if it's severe enough. So uh, absolutely, you can have one student sexually harass another student. And in that case, Title IX says if it affects their work, living, or educational environment. So say they don't want to go to class because they're being sexually harassed. That would be an example of the fact, a hostile um, environment for our students. So can I ask if, you know, the, is this standard when you're looking at a hostile environment, is it something that is subjective to the person who feels they're being harassed, or is it there more of an objective perspective on that? It's both. Um, you're going to have to look at the position of the person. Um, think about, particularly when you're talking about someone in the position of authority, um, how would that person feel if they were going to go confront that person? Obviously, it's going to be more difficult if that person's in a position of authority. And you're also going to use the reasonable person standard to, um, with the objectively offensive piece particularly, if someone compliments someone, say, on their hair, that's not going to be objectively um, offensive. But if there's repeated um, compliments or gestures made toward one particular student, then it may become a pattern of behavior. So you're going to look at the position of the student and you're going to look at the objective uh, facts. It's going to be that totality of the circumstances. And, and along that same line, I, I know I've come across, and the reason it's a two-part test is something could be objectively uh, sexually harassing, like over compliments, but a person could subjectively want them to make those compliments. They could welcome it. So you can, can essentially consent to that kind of behavior uh, is... Is, is that one of the reasons you would have to have make sure you do two-part test uh, when, you, when you have a sexual harassment claim? Yes, and, and there's actually several factors when you're trying to determine whether there, there's a hostile environment. Um, one of those is actually welcomeness, is whether or not the person is receptive to those comments. Um, if they're okay, you can have other students in the classroom who may be concerned and report that to me, but I actually talk to the student and they say it doesn't bother them, if it's a welcome compliment, then you're not going to move towards uh, it being a hostile environment for that student. So absolutely, welcomeness. There's other factors, um, you know, the age and, and, and position of authority. If you have two students um, who are equal, um, it's going to be more difficult because obviously one's not in a position to co be in a coercive position. So, uh, but welcomeness is absolutely one of the factors. And we're about to take our first break for the day, and we're going to walk through all of these factors. But before we do, uh, Professor, someone asked us, to, uh, gave us a call and wanted us to uh, restate when the event is today. And I've got it. It's, it's uh, the book Locking Up Our Own at 1245 at the Weems Auditorium at the Ole Miss School of Law. And there's an event tonight at the Overby Center. Professor, what time did that start? You know, I'm not 100% sure what the Overby Center is, but uh, uh, time is. But if they, they can look that up, if they look at the Overby Center website, it should be on there. But... Again, he'll be speaking uh, there as well. That is open to the public. But I do know at 1245 he'll be speaking here at the law school, and refreshments will be provided. Great. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to In Legal Terms. If you missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org forward slash In Legal Terms. You can also find it on the new MPB Media app. Today, we're talking about the law of sexual harassment and sexual assault. We'd love for you to join our conversation. Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-672. 7464. Our special guest today is Honey Ursery. She's the Title IX coordinator at the University of Mississippi. And right before the break, we started to talk about the factors that uh, come into play when you have a hostile work environment uh, or potential hostile work environment claim. And it might be worthwhile if we could just walk through what those factors are 
uh, that someone would need to establish as to whether they have a hostile work environment claim? Well, the first thing I'm going to look at is, is this a pattern of behavior? If it's unwelcome, as we talked about before, then I'm going to go to that next phase to see if this is a pattern of behavior. What's the relationship between the alleged harasser and the subject of the harassment? What is the degree to which it affects the person's work environment? Um, also, I'm going to look at the type, frequency, and duration of that conduct. And uh, the number of individuals involved, do we have uh, multiple people who are actually harassing one person? Um, that can also be determinative in whether or not subjectively that's creating that environment for that one person. Um, there's other things, other incidents, incidents of gender-based but not sexual harassment. Are there other issues within that environment that are creating that hostile work environment for that person? So those are some of the factors, and then obviously, like I keep saying, it's totality. Every individual case is going to have um, different circumstances, so we have to look at all those factors combined with that subjective test and the objective test. Uh, in your experience, uh, has, has there ever been a case where just one act or one event would be severe enough or uh, pervasive enough to establish that sort of to, to, to be a pattern in and of itself to be sexual harassment? Fortunately, I can say that I haven't had that in my experience. Uh, I know that it could be, say, someone was groped at work. Uh, that could also be considered a sexual assault. We haven't had that happen, but absolutely it's possible. And if, uh, if someone believes, and, and we can put this in the context of uh, if, as a, your role as a Title IX coordinator, if, if someone believes they, they're the victim, what are the first steps they should do, and then what happens after they've, they've reported a claim? Well, if it's at the university, uh, we obviously will have a Title IX coordinator such as myself that they can report directly to. We don't ask that they go up the chain at this university. They report it directly to me and I will go and investigate the case for them um, if they want me to. Some people just want to, me to have a conversation with the alleged harasser just to let them know that this behavior is not acceptable, put them on notice. Uh, I try to uh, accommodate that individual because you don't want to make the situation worse. Some people may say, this has been going on for a long time, nobody's addressed this behavior. In that case, I'm going to do an investigation, start talking to people who work there currently, who worked there previously, and ask about their interactions with the alleged harasser. If I do find that there is a Title IX violation or there, it has created a hostile work environment, I'm going to talk to that person's supervisor and make recommendations, but the, the ultimate decision is going to be on the supervisor of that employee. Okay, and and in the in the workplace, I think what the way you've described it, it might be slightly different because most employers would have a system set up where if you you feel like you're the victim of of sexual harassment, the first person you would report to would be your supervisor. That's correct, uh, um, and that's that can be a problem if say the uh, the harasser is your employer and you have to go above that supervisor, and maybe you think that uh, there's a lot of things that aren't being handled properly within that chain that can absolutely cause some problems. I think a lot of employers actually have systems set up through human resources so that they can report those things and not have to go up the chain. I think it's really important for people to know what their resources are and what the policies are for their employers. And, you know, you, your office does a great job of training all of us at the university. You know, every faculty member, certainly every, every staff member, has to go through some mandatory training. Um, is that something that you see at other employers that they require that kind of training as well? I don't think it's uh, consistent. I really don't. I think that a lot of people, it's in their handbook maybe when they start their job, but it's not, um, it's not the first thing that they're going to train on. I think people are getting better. I think the conversation, the national conversation is moving us in that direction. But, no, I don't think a lot of people know what, what to do in those situations. And, and to be quite honest, we, we do educate our students, our faculty, and our staff. Um, but until you're in that situation, you don't start looking for those resources. I think it's really important. I think employers should have that information more available on a website, let them know that, have it posted. We have postings around this university. 
Um, I think universities are doing a much better job, wonderful job of, of getting that information out there. But uh, I don't know that employers have caught up quite yet. I can't say the state of Mississippi now, uh, when you're a new employee, one of the first things you have to do within the first couple of days is take a, uh, a an extensive sexual harassment uh, training seminar that they, that they require everybody to take and pass a quiz after the fact. Uh, so I think that's certainly a step in the right direction. Absolutely. I, I think that that actually has, I think in the last year, that's become mandated by, I believe, the governor. And I think it's a wonderful step. Absolutely, for our state employees. Now, and sort of taking this to the a broader national level, it seems like, uh, at least from the news that we see today, and that's one of the reasons we've we've got this as a topic today, uh, that there either there's more instances of harassing behavior of a sexual nature, or it's just more reported instances uh, of it. But what sort of your take on that as to why this is now more firmly in the national consciousness? I honestly don't think there's more instances. Um, if you look, the reporting, that's, uh, the national conversation, a lot of these things happened years ago. Um, I think people are just feeling more comfortable coming forward now. Um, when someone in a position of, you know, of, of power or authority comes out and says, I was sexually harassed, I think that empowers other people to come forward. Uh, I think that now people are feeling more comfortable about talking about these topics and they don't feel shamed by or, or told that they're overreacting in these situations so they feel more comfortable. And there are strength in numbers. When one person comes out, they don't feel like they're alone, so they feel like they can have those conversations. So I think it's not a matter of these things are happening more. I think that these things have been happening. People are just more comfortable talking about them now. And uh, if if someone feels that they're the victim, they, they have other recourse beyond just reporting it up the chain. They, they also have capabilities of filing uh, civil lawsuits or reporting it to the EEOC. Could you sort of talk about other avenues uh, that, uh, that an individual uh, could pursue uh, in addition to just reporting it to their supervisor? Sure. Well, they can obviously call the EEOC. Um, that is going to be the, the federal um, the federal department that handles all these cases. Um, that, to me, usually the EEOC is going to ask, like, how the employer handled the case. So um, that can be one of those things that you might have to go back to your employer, but you can let them know that it's an issue, particularly if you don't think that your employer is handling it properly. I think that's definitely a, a route. Um, civil lawsuits, absolutely, if there's a pattern of behavior and employers are, are not addressing that behavior and they're allowing this harassment to continue, a civil lawsuit is absolutely one of the avenues. Um, and I, I know that there's probably going to be, there's a lot of lawsuits out here there right now. The EEOC, that's what they do day in and day out. They'll go and talk to the employers to find out what they did, um, what steps they took, if they knew about the behavior. So um, if you don't feel as though your employer is taking you seriously, there's absolutely those avenues as well. Well, and, and, and that's a great point because if employers um, have a, 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 a deep responsibility if, if someone files a, 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 or a allegation of sexual harassment within that workplace – so what what would you tell employers to do, or what should employers be doing, better way to phrase it, should they be doing in order to minimize uh, claims of sexual harassment within their workplace? Well, I think the first step is education. Um, I think um, Richard Gershon and I were having this conversation before we started uh, the phone call. Um, essentially... A lot of employers right now, they need to set the tone. I think it's, we need to start a culture of respect, saying um, it's okay, that's just how they are, or making excuses for this behavior is not helping. Um, we do work in a professional environment. Um, when we're at work, we should be able to work. Um, and I think a lot of things that have happened in the past are because a uh, behavior is just allowed to continue. Um, and educating not just people who are new employees, but people who've been employed for a while, just to let them know, uh, because the national conversation is changing and people are do want to be treated equally in the workplace. I think that's um, what we all want. 
we want everybody to be comfortable in their workspace. So educating your employees, um, setting the tone, letting them know what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Um, employers have the ability to limit you in your employment. If you have First Amendment rights to say anything you want to, um, but you don't have that right at work. So I think letting employees know what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and like you were talking with the state of Mississippi, just having something that's pretty intense, letting them know how serious these issue, issues are and what sexual harassment actually looks like. Because some people may just need that education. I think that's a, a step in the right direction. And then also having the conversations, not being afraid to ask questions about what people find offensive in the workplace and, and being okay um, with those responses. I, I think that a, a lot of times when we talk about things that aren't comfortable or we're concerned they're going to be controversial, we back away from those. But I think it's important to sit down and, and talk to people who are different, women, LGBTQ, um, just have those conversations and understand one another. Well, let's go to the phones. We've got Vaughn from uh, Jackson. Vaughn, good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Thank you all, uh, Dr. Gerson and, and all. Uh, I want to just I wanted to, to call in to, to thank uh, Ms. Honey, uh, Ms. Osri, for the work that that she does on campus. I'm I'm fortunate to work with with her every year um, for a summer program that I direct, and I just want to I want to let people know that the work they do, particularly at the university, um, around supervision of minors, which which also covers uh, a lot of the same material, uh, sexual harassment and people who. Uh, take advantage of minors. Uh, that work is so important. The, the staff that we train um, are so much more informed, and I think a, a big part of changing the culture, uh, to the point Miss Miss Honey Miss Usher just made, in terms of educating people and uh, helping people develop the, the, the right sensibilities uh, about these issues and the right knowledge base to function from, uh, is so important. Uh, and, of course, as we do it with young people, we know that they become more informed adults. Uh, and the young professionals we work with, they take the knowledge that they learn into their workspaces, into their school spaces. Uh, and it does a lot to kind of making our future better than our past is. So I just wanted to, to call in and thank her for the work they do and um, express my, my gratitude. So thank you all. Vaughn, thank you very much for that call, and we need to take our next break for the day. But when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the law of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Uh, we're going to turn the conversation toward how the law protects against uh, victims, protects victims of sexual assault. We'd love for you to join our conversation. Give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. If you're going to get two guys to do a TV show about Mississippi, you couldn't pick two more enthusiastic cheerleaders than you and me. I'm an artist. I like to paint. I'm a restaurateur. I like to eat. That's what we're about. This week, we travel to Greenwood and visit with Martha Foos. There's a lot of eating, as always. Some painting beside the road. And we share togetherness in a big way. Join Robert St. John and Wyatt Waters in Palette to Palette, Thursday at 7 on MPB Television. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This morning we've been talking to Honey Ursary 
uh, the Title IX coordinator at uh, the University of Mississippi. And before the break, we had a call from Vaughn uh, talking about a the summer program. I got a little short on time and had to take a break. But, uh, Ms. Esri, could you tell us a little bit about the summer training program that uh, Vaughn had called in about? Sure. Every year we have all camps and programs have to go through a supervision of minors training if you're going to be an authorized adult. So essentially, if you're going to have minors in your care, you have to go through uh, a training to identify, we're we're trying to protect our children that come onto this campus and also to make sure they know how to interact with youth while they're on our campus or in a university program. They also have to go through a background check. Vaughn and his team are really great. Um, They have a really large group every year that comes in and and, uh, they always make sure to have in-person supervision of minors training for their authorized adults and uh, we found that uh, they also identify children who may be abused, so we let them know how to, that they are mandatory reporters and what the law is in Mississippi on reporting uh, abuse. So it's, it's, it's a great program, and, and I really enjoy doing it. And we were talking a little bit uh, during the break about how a lot of this came out of the Penn State situation. So it, looks, it seems like sometimes these, these you know, really nationally uh, horrible events that occur give rise to some change that actually can be good in the long run. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly think that for our campus, it's great for them to be informed because we do have these uh, these young children. I think the youngest, uh, correct, I may be corrected later, I think we have eight-year-olds who stay um, up to, you know, 17 years old, and the needs are different. So every... Um, group that we talk to, they have to know what to look for, how to interact. Obviously, interacting with a 15-year-old is going to be different from interactions with an 8-year-old. So um, I think that whatever came out of Penn State, it it actually for us is is a positive. And and you touched on it, uh, mandatory reporting. Uh, What is that, and and what is the law in Mississippi with regard to that and suspected child uh, child abuse? Yes, someone has... uh, Reason, reason to believe that a child is being abused, they, they have an obligation or in a, a legal obligation to report it to the Department of Human Services and uh, local law enforcement. So we let them know we have an 800 number. Also, um, you can go online and put that information in for the Department of Human Services. Uh, we talk them through that. Obviously, there's program directors here at the university, but it's any person. The law doesn't say you have to be a guardian if any person suspects and has a reasonable belief that they're being abused. So uh, that's law. That's the state law. So uh, we educate them on that, and um, they probably are, are better equipped for those situations than a lot of uh, other people in the state because they they know the law. We talk about it with them every year. So, um, And, of course, you know, my, my work, uh, my pr- former work, I, I saw a lot of those reporting cases come from teachers, because when students are comfortable with teachers and these um, young people, they get really comfortable with them, and they may disclose, so um, those are, it's really important for them to know what their legal obligations are. And, and you could go, I, I suspect, to the Department of Human Services, the State Department of Human Services website to get that number uh, if, you will, if you have reasonable suspicion that a, a child is being abused and call that yes. number? Yes, yes. Okay. Well, let's. We've been talking mostly this morning, the first half, about sexual harassment in the workplace at the university and Title Seven and Title Nine. Let's turn to sexual assault, which is another topic that's uh, uh, widely in the news these days. Uh, and you're a former prosecutor uh, there in the Oxford area. First, what is uh, just generally what is sexual assault? Well, sexual assault is sort of an umbrella term. It, it refers to unwanted sexual touching or sexual penetration. Uh, and, and that can be in any setting between any two individuals, uh, correct? That's correct. Okay. And if if someone believes they're the victim of a sexual assault, what what should they do? It's up to that person, honestly. Um here at the university, we we're, we want to know what the needs of the survivor are. Uh, some want to go to law enforcement, particularly if it's after an event. 
Some choose not to go to law enforcement. They, um, we offer them resources and accommodations. So I would say what we want them to know first and foremost is that we have those resources. We have that counseling. It's free here at the university for all our students. Um, they also, the Student Health Center, we have uh, sexual assault nurse examiners who can perform rape kits. Uh, at the university. They can also go to the hospital. So really, it just depends on the needs of that person. I think everyone assumes that every sexual assault victim wants to involve law enforcement, and that's just not the case. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of our students choose not to go through law enforcement. So I guess know your resources, know your options, and make that decision for yourself because one of the most important things is to give that power back to that person. We don't want to make decisions for them. We want to allow them to, to do what they want to do. So just we want them to know that there's resources out there for them if they need them. And, and sometimes I think, you know, uh, someone who is uh, being assaulted will come to a faculty member or staff member, and our duty is to report that to the Title IX office. Primarily because we don't have the resources to help that student the way that, that Honey's office does. Right, and we, we train our faculty and staff uh, to, to report those things, again, directly to my office. Uh, it's great to have one place that you have all these things, particularly if the person doesn't want to move forward, that's fine. But if we have, say, three students that come and it's the same alleged perpetrator, we may have um, an ongoing threat to campus safety. So uh, we like to keep all that information in my office. It also keeps it more confidential. They don't have to talk to multiple people about what happened to them. If they don't want to go through conduct uh, through the university, I don't make them retell their story. Uh, that's for if they want to share that in counseling. I'm there as a bridge if they need it. I'm there as a resource. So just because a student, and I think this is important, if a, if a student wants to come to you and report it to you, you you are not compelled. The law doesn't make you then go to law enforcement. They can come confidentially to you and discuss the situation. Yes. Okay. And how, how does that work uh, out outside of the university setting? Uh, a, a potential victim, and, and we're seeing lots of them in the news these days, they, they go and want to report it uh, – to somebody, but if, if they do report it to law enforcement, are, are they required then to pursue the case all the way through, or how does that how does that work? No, law enforcement typically, you know, will will also respect the wishes of the victim. Um, you can sign what's called a non prosecution, um, I guess, sort of an agreement, but you can also rescind that if you change your mind. But they're not going to force anybody to pursue anything with a sexual assault. Obviously, they would like them to, particularly if uh, they're concerned that there can be um, other victims in the future. And I can tell you from having prosecuted cases, we would try to respect the wishes of uh, the victim. But, you know, ultimately, we also represented the state of Mississippi. So it's kind of a different responsibility as a prosecutor uh, as opposed to my position now. So at some point, it, it, it almost becomes uh, the discretion of the prosecutor. But law enforcement, if someone comes in and says they don't want to take it to grand jury, typically they won't. Can I ask, what, what if the, the victim of a sexual assault is 14 or 15? Does that is that child abuse at that point? Is that child molestation? Is it, I mean, is there another, does that cross both lines in a way? Well, <clears throat> when you're talking about um, a 14-year-old, they can't consent. The age of consent in Mississippi is 16. So if you're talking about a 14-year-old, I think um, you're going to be talking about it's going to be child sexual abuse. If you're talking about a 15-year-old, then you get into, we have age differences, whether, I guess some people refer to it as statutory rape. All of them, if you look under the sexual battery statutes, they're all there. Um, consent's really not an issue because you can't consent if you're under a certain age. Um, but if you have a 17-year-old who has sex with a 15-year-old, um, it's, I think it's, I believe it's 36 months, so you're not going to be in that sexual battery. But if you have an 18- or 19-year-old having sex with a 15-year-old, then you're going to be in, it's, I think it's 
Section C, if anyone wants to look it up, it's um, actually going to be uh, sexual battery and it's the statutory requirement because they just can't consent because of their age. And, and, and if that's the case, then the law enforcement just they absolutely have to pursue that as a criminal case. That's right. It, it, with similar to what we were talking about before the break on the news and sexual harassment, and you see a lot more cases, so there's there, there's more individuals coming out. Do you do you think that that's having a similar effect uh, uh, in the sexual assault uh, realm? And that is that because more people now are willingly coming forward, at least they seem to be coming forward, that that in, doesn't encourage isn't the right word. But it makes people feel like they don't feel, I think you use the word shame, they don't feel ashamed anymore. Right. I, I, I do. I think that people are more comfortable coming forward. I think we're educating better. I think that they realize that these resources exist. Uh, and, and they realize that the, we're not going to take the power away from them, that coming to us doesn't necessarily mean that there's an automatic investigation. I think that was a lot of the fear that if they came to see Title IX, then we were going to involve law enforcement or we were automatically going to take it through conduct. So I think education has been key, and I definitely think the national conversation is, is shifting. Well, we're going to take our final break for the day. And when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about the law of sexual uh, assault. There's still a lot more to cover, and there's still plenty of time for you to join our conversation. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org forward slash In Legal Terms. The show is also available on the MPB Media app. There is still time for you to join our show today. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 We're talking this morning with Honey Ursary, the Title IX coordinator at Ole Miss, about the law of sexual assault. And I'd like to turn the conversation now, uh, maybe harken back to your prosecutorial days. Uh, if, if you had an, a, a victim come to your office and they wanted to prosecute uh, this type of a case, what, what did the investigation involve from, from your point of view? You mean as a prosecutor? Yes. Well, normally the investigation would be complete by the time I received it. Um, if we were planning to go to trial... I would go back and talk to uh, the victim to see where they were. Um, unfortunately, the legal system takes a while, so by the time that it would be ready for trial, it would be at least a year, a year and a half later. Sometimes they just wanted to get a plea and move on with their lives. If they did want to move forward, I would go back and re-interview witnesses to find out if um, you know, they were still consistent and we would have conversations about uh, the defendant as well and maybe some anybody sometimes we found out that there were other allegations that we didn't know about so we'd go and try to pursue those and try to get those in um i guess it's prior bad acts we do uh, have a hearing to see if it was uh, more probative than prejudicial if there were other people that made allegations in the past and uh, basically, we just ha- we had to make sure that everybody was still on board. 
Uh, law enforcement played a, a large role in that, obviously, helping us uh, get evidence together. Uh, we always look at rape kits. Um, I always said with our sexual assault cases that um, it was probably one of the few cases we could have DNA and still not be assured of any conviction. Um, you know, we always knew what the defense was going to be. Usually it was going to be that the sex was consensual. So, um, and, and sometimes that can be a, a really difficult thing to prove or disprove because you usually have just two people in the room. Well, and, and that, that, it's a good point because when you're a prosecutor, uh, the, the police officers, detectives, they would do the, the bulk of the investigation. But I, I suspect your role as the Title IX coordinator at the university, now you're sort of the frontline investigator. Correct. Now my, my role's changed a lot. This is, um, and, and it's interesting because Students, because there's not that, um, I'm not law enforcement, I think it's a lot easier for them to have these conversations with me. And we have to have both the complainant and respondent's versions to take before conduct, so they want to talk to me. They want to let me know what happened, and I'll talk to the complainant and all their witnesses. Um, we look at all these surrounding uh, circumstances, how much people had to drink, was the complainant stumbling, had they urinated on themselves, were they vomiting, were they slurring, could they consent, essentially. And then we'll talk to the respondent and their witnesses, uh, gather text messages. The age of technology has made things uh, more complex, but then again, you're, you know, there's a lot more evidence to gather. I'll get police reports. And my job is really just information and evidence gathering. I'm not making any decisions. So um, I'm not taking a side. As a prosecutor, you're building a case. I'm gathering evidence as in Title IX. So my role is a lot more objective. Uh, and, and, and it can be um, I have to talk to the witnesses uh, before and after. And usually you're dealing with people who are intoxicated. So that can be a little challenging at times, but um, and, and that's how you kind of get around or, or understand better the circumstances leading up to any allegation, and, and it gives you a better idea. I think they call them outcry witnesses, too. Who did the complainant go and talk to after the fact? What did they say? What did the respondent say after the fact? And that's pretty much how we make the determination, or they make the determination of what they think happened in these sexual assault cases. Are you able to use uh, allegations, say, by uh, other individuals who never actually formally filed a complaint, uh, but maybe they come forward as you're investigating one case and say, you know, I was a, a victim of that same person. I didn't file a complaint, but I, I was a victim too. Is, is that something you can use both in your investigation and at the eventual hearing? Yes. Um, we. What I would likely do in that scenario we've actually had that happen uh, with sexual harassment cases i go back and talk to the, the individual involved in the other case and say hey i've had somebody else come forward do you do you mind if i use your name in this report um and and normally um they're fine with it if they know there's someone else that it happened to um they're a lot more willing to go forward so absolutely we can use that information and i think it's it's, it's absolutely relevant to know if there were other people that have alleged sexual assault on, on your campus. Well, and I have, I have three daughters and I have a wife, and so I'm concerned about these issues, obviously, for them. I, you know, my daughter is a student here, one of them, and I, we, we talked to her about not getting drunk at parties and things like that um, you know, because of this. But also I'm worried about my son, too, because I want to make sure – he has the proper understanding of what consent is and what that means. How, how, what is consent exactly? Well, the university's definition is that it's an affirmative agreement through clear actions or words to engage in intimate activity. Basically, that both parties, you have to be in agreement about what's happening. Um, and you can withdraw consent at any time. Um, so we want them to understand that everything that you're doing, you need to make sure your partner is okay with it. Um, obviously, you know, alcohol makes that more complicated. Knowing if somebody's too intoxicated, can they consent? Because it doesn't matter what the definition of consent is if they're too intoxicated to give it. So it's, it's tricky, but I think it's really important that, that they understand that you have to make sure 
sure your partner's okay with, with everything that's going on. And I, I have a son and a daughter, so I'm in the same predicament as really just talking to them and, and, and not being afraid to have those conversations with your, your kids early because they're going to have – the world is a complex place. You want to make sure they understand and respect one another. So um, I think it's important for not just, you know, young men but also young women to understand what that looks like. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Craig down in Biloxi. Good morning, Craig. Yeah, I was wondering if you could touch on uh, any false accusations, if the, if there's illegal or common, uh, and, and that's about it. I don't want to listen on the air. Craig, thank you, and I, and I think he, he's that's a good question uh, because so often these, as you pointed out earlier, are, are just two people in the room. He said, she said, but if if you could uh, definitively show it was a false accusation, are there any consequences to that? Well, I mean, I guess legally there could be for law enforcement. There is, um, I think it's a misdemeanor. And I apologize, I can't remember. I've only seen it that used one time, and it was because they used such extensive resources. It wasn't in this county, but um, they used such extensive resources and found out that they were, in fact, false allegations. And that person, I think, had some mental health issues. Um, we typically... I'll go in and do an investigation. I can honestly say the only time I've seen that happen is when somebody says that they were allegedly sexually assaulted. We looked into it. There was no named respondent, and we found out that there were, in fact, uh, there was nothing there. That's why investigations are just so important. Um, you don't need to jump to any conclusions when you get one of these reports. I can tell you I've gotten some reports that have looked pretty egregious and then looked into them and found out somebody maybe fell and um, were, they were sexually assaulted maybe when they were younger, and they come and they have, um, you know, injuries, and they say they were assaulted, and you, everyone assumes the worst. So um, investigations are crucial. Um, I don't think, you know, I hear the, the phrase regret sex. I, I've not seen that. What I see usually, if you have any that are, are, are false allegations, they're usually somebody who's mentally ill. Um, but, again, that, that goes down to... Uh, in proper investigations, and I'll say law enforcement's been at wonderful working with me on those to go pull footage and let me know if they just can't find anything. And so. Craig, Craig, thank you so much for that call, and we, we appreciate Honey Ursery Ur- Ur- for joining us today. That's going to wrap us for In Legal Terms. To hear today's show or previous show, visit mpbonline.org forward slash In Legal Terms. For Professor Richard Gershon, I'm Greg Mayer. Up next is Relatively Speaking. Join us again next Tuesday at 10 for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.